again, I'm going to say this from a very public health standpoint. In reality, because this virus does not cause a lot of death or cause massive morbidity or spread, and it resolves with most people without causing any problems, you really don't necessarily have to know every single positive in what's happening, but you do want to have some surveillance-based testing in place so that you can ramp up in case something happens. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. I'm sure you've seen some of the stories about monkeypox in the news as of late, and you've probably heard about cases of it popping up in countries all over the world. So today, my friend Dr. Rodney Rohde returns to the podcast, and we're going to talk about what you need to know about monkeypox. Throughout this conversation, we're going to compare monkeypox to its cousin, smallpox, as well as to COVID-19. And while this is a far less severe disease, it's another example of the importance of laboratory testing and advocating for the lab. Here's Dr. Rodney Rohde. Well, first of all, I, so this is your third time back on the podcast. I think you're actually my first uh, third time guest. So thanks for coming back on. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the last time you were on, we were talking about COVID and COVID variants. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about monkeypox, which is kind of an interesting new uh, new event worldwide, it seems like. So the place I want to start with this is kind of, and I want to I want to get a little bit more technical than maybe some of the interviews you've done because of the audience we have who are mostly in lab medicine or at least interested in it. So let's start with the type. What type of virus is the monkeypox virus? Sure. So um, the virus itself kind of was first identified back in really the 50s. It's really not a new disease. And I think the first human case we saw was in uh, right around 1970, one that was isolated from a child. Uh, actually, they thought the, the child had smallpox in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I'm going to refer to that as the DRC uh, moving forward. But that's really the first okay. time we saw it. And monkeypox itself is is caused by the actual taxonomic name is monkeypox virus. And that virus belongs to a subset of viruses called the orthopox virus. And that belongs to the larger family of the pox viridae. So that is, you know, why I think monkeypox during this outbreak has garnered some attention, rightfully so, because of the kind of global events that are taking place, but also because within that pox viridae family of orthopox viruses is vaccinia, cowpox viruses, and smallpox. So smallpox obviously gets everybody's attention and monkeypox mm -hmm. really is a cousin. So it's kind of known as a cousin of smallpox, although it is not nearly as deadly or nearly as problematic. Okay. I see. I, I mean, I can understand if it's related to smallpox. Yeah. That would get a lot of people's attention. Uh, nobody wants to go through that again. Now the, the name monkeypox, that's a bit of a misnomer. I've heard you say, because it doesn't really come from monkeys, right? That's right. It actually, that name, really comes, uh, it dates back to the first documented cases of this illness in animals in 1958. And in 1958, there were a couple of outbreaks occurring in monkeys that were kept for research. But to date, uh, we do not believe, nor do we have any evidence showing that uh, the virus jumped 
from monkeys to humans. And monkeys really are not primary reservoirs or carriers of the disease. It just happened to be documented in those two uh, outbreaks that were occurring in monkeys. So monkeys can get the disease. And so that name kind of came from there. And I've often said, and you'll you'll read about this or see other people talk about it, it's probably more rightfully could be called rodent pox uh, because we believe that African rodents are really the primary reservoirs uh, that, that play a part in the transmission. Do we know specifically which rodents or is that kind of... We uh, don't. We don't. It's, it's been isolated uh, twice from rodents uh, and animals in nature. And so it's not exactly like Ebola. You know, if we're thinking about Ebola, we're still, we still think Ebola, which is a, a phylovirus, is probably a bat, but we're not certain. And so the same thing with this. So scientists have gone in and done, you know, hundreds of collections of different rodents, different animals, different, uh, you know, they've even looked at insects, trying to find the the primary reservoirs and the transmission chain, but really have not been successful in establishing that uh, with respect to getting a strong, you know, published uh, peer-reviewed article out of that. Okay, I see. All right, let's talk about the typical mode of transmission then from monkeypox. How, do, how does that typically work? This is, you know, obviously on everybody's mind because we're seeing cases of it pop up all over the all over the world right now. And so typically uh, the virus is transmitted through contact with an infected person or animal or even contaminated surfaces. And usually that that entry occurs through broken skin, so scratches or wounds or things like that. You can also inhale it um, through respiratory droplets, although that typically takes a very close kind of contact, and it also takes a lengthier period of time. So the contact time is thought to be at least three hours uh, through those types of respiratory droplets. And then the other uh, comment around this area has been uh, through indirect contact through like clothing or linens or bed bed linens. Um, things like that. And so human to human transmission rates are actually pretty limited because of that type of transmission. You know, it's not an aerosol. It's not a true airborne virus that actually is more difficult to transmit than something like COVID, certainly. Uh, But it's possible, including, uh, we think, through the close, close contact of sexual behavior, as we're seeing in this outbreak. But it has not been at this time, Dennis, um, identified as a sexually transmitted infection, an STI, directly. It okay. just seems to be part of the close human contact. The other, the other kind of rare way that you can get it is through animal contact uh, or animal products like uh, some of the um, the fecal contents or things like that. That's not well documented either, but we we have some indication that animal to human can occur as well. As far as the person-to-person contact, I mean, this is, as healthcare workers, this is a bit of a concern for us, but it sounds like even in that case, it's still, you know, you know, like you mentioned COVID, it's still a little bit more difficult. Uh, yeah, to, to contract. It, it really, it really is. And, and again, certainly right now in healthcare situations, and I've kind of been looking into this and following up with more real-time data because a lot of the information you find, including in some of the articles I've written that you mentioned, are based on historical, you know, information around monkeypox. But this is kind of a new look at it because, one, it's occurring all over the world and it seems to be staying put in 
uh, these certain populations of, of gay individuals or other individuals uh, that are that are practicing in these types of sexual behaviors. But uh, we do believe that you know, it can happen in anyone, heterosexual in any kind of situation when you're just discussing close contact. From a healthcare standpoint, because of that, you know, we're always going to be conservative and be careful. So certainly uh, gloves, you know, being careful with contact, how you're handling uh, wounds or lesions or pustules that might be appearing, uh, you know, all the good hand hygiene uh, that we've talked about in almost any situation in healthcare is important as well as, you know, possible respiratory protection using certain types of face mask and other PPE uh, to protect the healthcare worker. Uh, right now, it's important, I think, to mention, and, and again, this may pop up later, but even though it's a global outbreak, you know, right now, I think there's 10, 000, over 10,000 cases around 65 places in the world. And if you look at the U.S., I looked this morning before the, the talk here, Right now, as of the end of yesterday, according to CDC, there's 40 United States involved and uh, Puerto Rico and District of Columbia also. And we have about 929 cases in the U.S. with zero deaths. So what what's happening, of course, is that we want people to come forward if they have any suspicions or if they know they've been in direct contact with an individual or they traveled to Africa or any other of the risk factors associated with thinking they may have uh, monkeypox. And we're going to get those people isolated. We're going to do contact tracing and we're going to do, we're going to uh, do an assessment of whether or not they might need a vaccine, which we have. We have a couple of different vaccines available uh, and are an antiviral that's been shown to be somewhat effective. So right now that's the primary focus. And because it's such a slow uh, spreading type of virus, and we may mention this later, it has a very low reproductive number, under one. It's just difficult uh, to make it spread fast, which is great. And so if we can get people isolated and do contact tracing in the correct way, uh, we should be able to limit the impact of this virus in the population. Okay, so it sounds like this doesn't, you know, with COVID, a lot of the concern was not only the death rate, but also that it, the hospitalization rate that would be right. so high would overwhelm the system. That's right. And it sounds like with monkeypox, that's not really a concern at this point. That's exactly right. It, it, at least in the United States and probably other developed countries, we really don't have a lot of people in the hospital, actually. If you look, it's hard to get that data, but most people, most data that I've seen is that people are, you know, they, they do the assessment. Uh, and they send them home uh, for isolation and do the contact tracing. The cases that I've seen that do end up in the hospital, and this is also globally, are really due to uh, secondary bacterial infections from the lesions uh, that are in the genital area or in the anogenital area, and they're getting cellulitis. Uh, and so those individuals, a handful of them uh, are admitted. Uh, they're put on IV antibiotics to take care of that that uh, bacterial infection and typically sent home again. So right now there's been no massive hospitalization concerns uh, like we saw with COVID. Okay, okay, I see. All right, so get, getting back to the, the virus itself. So there are two types or two claves of monkeypox virus. Can you talk about what these two claves are? And then I wanna kind of get into which one is sort of the uh, prominent one in this outbreak. You know, again, 
due to the COVID outbreak, it's kind of interesting because, you know, people now, uh, general public seem to talk a lot more about their understanding of terminology like um, strains and variants yeah, and, yeah. Cl- and clades, right? So this has become more uh, interestingly in the general population vocabulary. I look at that as a good thing, Dennis, because as you know, I'm, very, I'm a big fan of science communication and raising the health literacy of everyone. So that's kind of a nice thing to see, but let's define it a little bit. So currently uh, there are two known viral clades. Uh, and what that means is what we know that nucleic acid wise, so genotype wise, we know that there's two clades of the monkeypox virus. And so one of them, and what we tend to do, we've done this historically, and then sometimes we change it later. We tend to name them by the region they're found in. So right now there's two clades. One is called the Congo Basin clade. That's the more virulent strain or or rather clade up to about 10% mortality has been seen with that historically. And then there's the less virulent West African clade and that clade has only shown up to about 1% mortality. And thus far during this outbreak, uh, to my knowledge, all confirmed monkeypox cases have been tied to that less virulent West African clade. So that, that's also good news. Do you happen to know, like, throughout the kind of the history of monkeypox, has there, is it common that it's one or the other, or is it sometimes both clades? Like, you know, it, to my understanding, it, it is historically, I don't know if I can speak to it going back, you know, decades and decades, but my understanding is that typically an outbreak is kind of defined by a particular clade and there's not not an overlap. But that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Uh, as, as often as I say, as kind of an epidemiologist, remember a lot of the, the surveillance and the testing we do is very passive. Uh, another thing for the public to know is passive surveillance means we don't do it until a case arises in a human being. Active surveillance is when researchers uh, interested in wildlife, zoonotic infection, go out into regions of certain countries, into the wild, and actively look for the virus through testing and try to document its um, its regionality or, or, you know, if it's over a certain area. And we just don't do that uh, very often. Really, that doesn't happen until you find a, a person or a researcher or an organization that's just, you know, totally interested in understanding the epidemiology of a particular virus and they will go into to a piece of Africa or, or, or all of Africa and they'll start looking for the virus in animals and insects and birds, you know, anything that they think might be a reservoir to try to document that that's viruses range kind of where they're at geographically. Monkeypox is not new to the U.S. I mean, I know many people, this might be the first time they've heard of it, but it's not new here. And in fact, there was an outbreak in 2003 that you had, you had some involvement in the response for that. Uh, can, can you tell me about that experience? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about that. That was thanks for bringing that up. That was kind of a, an interesting time for me. So, mm-hmm. as your audience and you may know, I've, I've spoken about this before. My my introduction to the workforce after my first two degrees in microbiology and virology was the Department of Health in Texas. And I was a bench level microbiologist and I worked primarily in virus isolation as well as uh, the zoonosis control division. So that was my specialization area. And so I worked there from 92 to a little past 2002. 
And then I've stayed very involved uh, interacting with my colleagues in public health at the Department of Health as well as CDC. So during that time, Dennis, uh, I mean, it was it was quite a, a range over that decade because I dealt with the big uh, anthrax issue right after 9-11. You might remember that. Oh, yeah. I dealt, yeah. I dealt with uh, West Nile virus entering the United States and really going across the U.S. and coming back. It's now endemic everywhere, West Nile virus. You, know, you don't hear about it very often, but I still track it. It's still out there. And other arthropod, I'm sorry, arthropod-based diseases like, um, you know, we're looking at things like dengue and yellow fever and making sure they're not entering the U.S. or other mosquito-borne viruses. So kind of tied up in all that, as well as avian influenza and other uh, things, believe it or not, like hantavirus that have come into Texas and, and moved around. So that's my background. And so as I was exiting the Department of Health career and entering academia, we had this first reported case of monkeypox in the United States. So this was in 2003, and it was from an outbreak in Texas, and it was linked to a shipment of animals from Ghana. And there was also some travel-associated cases from that shipment to, not from that specific time period, but in that same um, kind of framework of shipment of animals. This also happened in 2021, actually, in Maryland. So as you know, in in the world of science and research, sometimes we are uh, dealing with this, and we often refer to them as translocations. I've worked with this in the realm of rabies as well. So you have animals, for whatever reason, are being shipped uh, across uh, oceans or even across state lines. And the danger in that, obviously, is that you can introduce a really a hidden reservoir. You can almost think of it as a Trojan horse. Uh, where you're moving an animal that has, uh, for example, I'll, I'll just use rabies because I've seen this happen many times. You'll have a certain variant of rabies that might be found only in uh, coyotes in South Texas, which we've now eliminated. But there were time when coyotes were hunted by hunting clubs and they would move them. People would come out and trap them, uh, raccoons the same way. And they would move them with trucks and things like that. And they would take them across to another state, let's say, for example, Alabama. And they would release these animals into hunting enclaves uh, for hunters to hunt. And lo and behold, the animals had been incubating rabies. So you don't just go out and generally test animals because you have to, for rabies, you have to euthanize them to test their brains. So nobody would really know. And so basically you're introducing a new variant of rabies into a whole population of animals in a different state, you know, thousands of miles away. That creates problems, as you can imagine. And so this is kind of what happened with monkeypox. It was shipped. Nobody really, you know, thought about monkeypox. I'm sure it was on at least some suspicious list, you know, to be watching for. But like many things, if it's an incubating virus, you don't really have a test to test for monkeypox in a, in a rodent or an animal. And lo and behold, it ends up in Texas. And it really only... Uh, occurred in animals. The concern, Dennis, was that if that virus would have escaped or an animal would have gotten out, it could have entered the um, the ground squirrel population. It could have entered uh, other types of, of animals, rodent-based in Texas, and then you start your own reservoir of monkeypox right here in Texas. That did not happen, uh, at least as far as detection in cases. We never had any issues from it. But it's a good lesson, and I like to. I'm so glad you asked because this this goes back to my history with rabies. 
Mm-hmm. You got you have to be careful in the world of zoonotic infection because animals, even insects, uh, even plants for that matter, can be harboring viruses or other microbes. And when you move that and you introduce it to another country, you could be introducing something very dangerous to a naive population that has no immunity. It's part of why you get asked, you know, when you're traveling, what are you bringing back? You need to declare everything. And and you just can't bring certain things back without permission and documentation. You know, I was was thinking about this because here in Wisconsin, there's there's been, I mean, and I'm in Milwaukee, but there's been a couple sightings, not, I guess, kind of close by of uh, black bears. And because Mm -hmm. the... uh, it, it, like the population is moving from the, the north of the state kind of more to the, to the south for, I, I'm not sure even what the reason is, but is it similar to that? Like you, you're moving animals from one place to another. And so there's contact, potential contact, and you could have potential transmission of disease. Is that sort of a similar thing? That's exactly the same thing. Yeah, that's a great analogy. You know, and, and and we're talking about human movement of animals, but it doesn't have to be. It can be animals that are being affected by the climate, by environmental issues, by no water. And so they're finding new habitat. They're on the move. And so they even within a state, you know, if they're moving from way south to the northern tier, for example, in Wisconsin or wherever you're talking about, you know, there may be regions of lands and uh, forest and wilderness that have no indication of having a particular variant of virus or bacteria for that matter or whatever they're carrying and if that animal is moving either by itself or by human transportation you basically can introduce something brand new into a area and then now you have the opportunity at least for that virus to to find a new reservoir i mean what if it finds a new animal population that's even more able to adapt the virus for, you know, transmission within that animal population. And then, it, and then if it's an animal that humans interact with, even with hunting, so let's say it's um, deer or something like that, and humans are actually actively hunting it and consuming the, the meat for, for their diet, you just have, or, or skinning it, you know, cleaning an animal, you just have more opportunities for animal to human, you know, I like to call I always call viruses equal opportunity infectors. They, they really don't care okay. uh, who you are, what you are, uh, all that stuff we've talked about, even with SARS, it just, they just don't care. And so if the opportunity is there in your body and your, your ability to be infected and adapt for that virus is there, then you've created a possible new reservoir and a new chain of, of uh, infection opportunity. Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting. We could do a whole show. We could do a whole show, Dennis, talking about zoonosis, right? I mean, zoonotic uh-huh. infection is so important. And, and SARS really, I think, brought that to the forefront. We, we knew this, but I think for the public, and I've been talking about it for 30 years uh, with family and colleagues about how dangerous animal bites are, or animal interactions like wildlife or bats, or because people love animals, and I do too. Right. But you have to really, really be careful in any interaction, um, you know, and of course, I'm always going to talk about, you know, do not handle bats, um, do not handle wildlife. I mean, you just shouldn't be messing around with those types of animals, much less feral domestic pets that you just do not know their history. Uh, it, it's an opportunity 
for a virus or anything else through a bite, it could be a nasty bacterial infection that you can acquire because that animal is carrying things you just do not know. Oh, yeah, we might have to plan that one for the future. <laughs> All right. Now, you, you mentioned a little while ago that the public is kind of becoming more, more used to hearing epidemiology terms. And you mentioned variants. Uh, strain, things like this, but let's define a couple of others. So let's talk about the uh, differences between epidemic, pandemic, and endemic. Sure. So yeah, epidemi- epidemiology 101, right? So this is, um, and people use them, yeah. these terms sometimes inter- interchangeably, sometimes incorrectly. But in general, if you look these things up in an epidemiology textbook or a dictionary, really an epidemic is declared basically when a disease spreads over a wide area and many individuals are you know, ill at the same time. So that's typically the start. If it spreads globally, uh, which is what SARS-CoV-2 did, then you're talking about a pandemic, uh, basically a wider geographical area, significant portions of the population being affected. And so that's more of a pandemic. And some people are asking, of course, about monkeypox. Is it a pandemic? Right now, I, I'm in the I'm in the camp that would say no. Uh, I would I would identify the monkeypox outbreak as being more of an outbreak uh, that is spread over the. You know, of course, it's global, but it's remember that definition. It's not affecting. Uh, you know, huge. It's not escalating. It's not affecting huge numbers of the population, and they're not really. Uh, significantly ill to the point of mortality and things like that. So there's kind of some gray area in there. And then if you're talking about an endemic situation, so endemic is something people also don't always understand, but endemic would mean something, uh, a disease that's at low levels, but it's always there. So um, for example, even rabies might be used as an example uh, in Texas. We have different variants of rabies, like skunk rabies and bat variants of rabies. And there's not a huge outbreak going on. You know, there's not massive numbers of people dying from rabies. You, you, we only have one to five deaths per year in the United States from rabies, but it's always there, uh, typically in an animal reservoir perhaps in water, if it's some other type of infect, uh, some other type of microbe or even other plants or animals. So it's, it's low levels. Uh, it could be within a certain region or even across a larger region, but it's not causing any death or, or um, morbidity at the time. Okay. And a lot of people are talking about, you know, COVID eventually would become endemic. endemic. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty true of most things. If you have a pandemic or an epidemic, Typically, uh, you can start thinking about things becoming endemic, you know, whether you're talking about influenza or whether you're talking about salmonella. I mean, just about anything can become endemic, meaning it's just kind of there right under the surface, percolating, usually usually in the animal population. But you could also be talking about the water or, or other things like that or birds, uh, things like that. And so it's, it's just not active in the human population when it's endemic. Okay, that makes sense. And then as far as pandemic, I mean, that's not only worldwide, but it's a large numbers and affecting many populations. Right. Greater range, greater coverage at the point of global and, and you know, massive mortality and, and morbidity. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for those definitions. You bet. Uh, now, you wrote in an article. Uh, there was a study done 
and it was a single study that showed that monkeypox has acquired more mutations than is typical, and that this may be kind of a accelerated evolution of the virus. Can you talk about this and kind of explain what, what that means? Yeah, let me try to, to do a decent job here with this. This is kind of new. So mm-hmm. but just briefly, I uh, want to remind everyone that monkeypox is a it's a pretty large a double-stranded DNA virus. It's about seven times bigger than, say, um, a typical coronavirus. Okay. And, and DNA-based viruses in general, now this is a this is a broad sweeping statement, but DNA-based viruses can typically correct their own errors when they replicate, and they just don't mutate as often. RNA viruses like SARS, like influenza, uh, have a lot of different ways to recombine and reassort. Influenza actually has different RNA segments, and they mix and match. And so when you see with the RNA, like influenza, you may have seen, or the audience may have seen, like H1N1 or H5N1. Sure. Those are different. Those are different reassortments of the genetic makeup of it. So it happens a lot. RNA viruses are really problematic. They mutate often. It's why we are seeing uh, right now the new Omicron version BA5 is the current uh, winner uh, with respect to moving along that that pandemic. It just keeps mutating uh, to our immunity to perhaps the use of vaccines and so forth. So, so RNA is just a mess. They, they tend to be more problematic and more difficult, in fact, then is to create vaccines because they change so often. So you, you see that, right? You have, to, you have to change the vaccines for SARS. You have to deal with influenza every year. You tweak the vaccine. It's always on the move. It's a pain. DNA viruses tend to be more stable in general. So you might even realize that, you know, when you get a a certain type of vaccine, for example, smallpox, we eliminated it, uh, a much more stable virus. Uh, we were able to, to do that back in 1980 to kind of finish that off and eliminate it. And so DNA viruses tend to be a little bit more stable and they just don't mutate as much. So that's just one thing I want to mention. So that helps. Uh, and they typically only, they typically, again, a broad statement, will only collect or mutate one or two times per year compared to 20 to 30 times for an RNA virus like coronavirus. So that's the that's the difference. It's quite big uh, when you think about that. So what, what about this particular monkeypox outbreak? So what they've done uh, in some, and this is a very preliminary study when I wrote about it, and you can find this online if you do the, 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 lit, the lit search, but. I'll include a link um, to it in the show notes. Yeah, it's, it's a group and they're actually, I think it's a, a preprint so they're still kind of working on getting it, you know, officially peer reviewed and all that. But this monkeypox virus looks like it may have amassed a higher number of mutations. And they're claiming almost 50 mutation events compared to a version of the virus back in 2018. Now, this is according to kind of a preliminary analysis. And the group has identified that of those 50 or so mutations, few mutations, about 42 of them carry I'm getting a little technical here. They carry the distinct signature of an enzyme called ApoBec3, A-P-O-B-E-C-3. Now, getting into the weeds here, but this enzyme was first discovered by researchers that were looking at HIV. So we think this enzyme, if if it's part of of this issue, uh, is a so-called host defense factor, a host defense factor. So what does that mean? 
that means it's basically the human being in this case, humans uh, that have that enzyme. It's there as an immune system weapon that people and animals use to help disarm viruses like monkeypox. So basically this enzyme is helping to force the virus to change. And when it changes, it's making mistakes and it basically causes the virus to self-destruct. So that's kind of a long kind of thinking about that, but it, our bodies have these abilities. Uh, it's kind of a host mediated defense in which we're kind of trying to protect ourselves against viral infection. And so it's basically causing the virus to um, undergo suicide, basically. So it's kind of mis kind of tricking the virus into replicating in a way that will cause them to self-destruct and we'll kind of keep it at that level. And so, you know, there's different groups um, that are talking about this article. Uh, some think that um, this is not a big deal. It's just an accumulation of mutations that's occurring because of host-mediated infection. Other people are unclear about how this might change the virus. And so, or, you know, the famous saying that we always say, they're watching it right now to see if that change, those changes are going to cause monkeypox to exhibit how it transmits, uh, how it's, how it's uh, severity and disease uh, may occur, for example, due to the antiviral that's being used. Can it, can it change itself in a way that's going to be uh, detrimental to human populations? That we don't know. And so that's what we're kind of watching right now. But it is interesting that there were that many events found in just really roughly four years from 18 to now in comparing those viruses. So they're watching it and they're looking at it. And, um, you know, I don't think people are freaking out over it right now, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Okay. I see. So it's interesting to kind of science nerds like us, but mm -hmm. uh, it's not, it's something that, you know, like with COVID variants and things that some of them were more uh, virulent and more transmissible. And so far, it doesn't seem to be the case with these monkeypox. That's right. And, okay. and, and right. I mean, it's a great, it's really an interesting time, even though it's kind of scary for people to be, be to be dealing with two global outbreaks. Uh, it's a great time to educate people. And so I, again, I appreciate this opportunity because it's really a a absolute contrast. I mean, an RNA virus like coronavirus, you are seeing it in real time. Just a regular person understands what's going on with, you know, alpha, delta, omicron, all these different uh, variations of omicron. You can see how it's kind of diluted itself. Fortunately, we're very fortunate that it's become less and less um, impactful for mortality. Even up to this point, we're seeing more hospitalizations uh, this month uh, due to BA5, but no more mortality. So even though some hospitalization has gone up, uh, people aren't dying as, as bad as they were with Delta, for example. So we're seeing that play out in, you know, 18 months to two years in real time. That's real. That's, that's an RNA-based virus. They are very uh, diabolical. They are very sneaky in how they mutate and they do it quickly. And so we're fortunate, again, Dennis, that we uh, we have, have been able to um, rapidly use technology like mRNA vaccines and other antiviral development that is at least trying to keep up with that. That is difficult to do. And so I continue to state one of the one of the greatest and exciting things 
of the coronavirus pandemic has been to our technology development and rapid development of, of life-saving vaccines and, and antivirals. On the flip side of that, we can look at monkeypox now and talk about how slowly it mutates and how you know, we're really not seeing any massive spread. There's no transmission issues. We're not seeing outbreaks in certain states or cities that are blowing up hospitals. You know, there's no surges. Uh, there's no issues like we saw with coronavirus. So it's it's very much a good contrast for, for virology 101, uh, people that want to kind of understand epidemiology. There's an absolute difference between DNA-based viruses and RNA-based viruses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of two different ends of, of the spectrum as far as those two mm -hmm. viruses. Okay. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Rodney Rohde. We'll be right back. LabVine invites you to their Laboratory Transformation Seasonal School to help laboratory professionals gear up for the future of healthcare. This is a three-day online event taking place August 29th through the 31st. Day one focuses on change, transformation, and culture. Day two, on staff optimization, and day three on implementation and change management. I'll be speaking at this event as well as a few other people who you have heard on this podcast. You can register for free for Laboratory Transformation Seasonal School by following the link in the show notes. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need, comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Rodney Rohde on the People of Pathology podcast. I, I want to talk about transmission for a little bit. Um, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier. So we're going to talk about the R-naught value of monkeypox. And then let's compare that to what it is for COVID. Let's start with monkeypox. And let's start with a definition. So an, an R-naught or an R-O is defined as the reproductive number. Again, you can find this in most you know, infectious disease kind of literature and epidemiology literature, even the medical literature. And really, it's a definition of how many people can one person spread a, a any agent, microbacteria, whatever you're talking about, to other people. So monkeypox historically has been identified as having an RO of less than one. The smaller the number, Dennis, the better with respect to human impact. So that means that if I have monkeypox, I have I have a hard time spreading it to even one person because it's lower than one. That's a good thing. Unlike uh, something like SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID. Now, this is still being worked out because you never really know the perfect RO because you would have to know the full denominator and numerator of all people that have been infected and exposed, but you kind of have a moving target. But COVID right now, we think is somewhere between two and six, <laughs> depending on the variant you're studying. Okay. Um, so, you know, Omicron might be higher because it was crazy rapid. And even this new cousin, this BA5 seems to be very rapid and that can be problematic. But fortunately, again, we have low mortality uh, with the Omicron. So, 
for perspective, it's really important. Um, if it's if it's massive mortality as well, then that's dangerous. You know, if you have something killing 30 percent of the people and it's got an RO of 15, that would be scary. Uh, so yeah. we haven't really we haven't really run into that for some um, for some comparison. If you look at a virus like measles, um, which has unfortunately made a comeback for various reasons, including vaccine misinformation and things like that. Measles is more like 15. Oh, wow. 12, yeah, 12 to 15. Chickenpox is pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it can be, that can be problematic. You're talking about one person that can spread it to a dozen people uh, in a close context. So that's difficult to do contact tracing. It's difficult to slow things down. Whereas monkeypox, you know, under one, um, and it, and it takes a longer time, we think three or more hours. And so it's just thankfully not something we're too concerned about with respect to high transmission. Okay, that makes sense. And that, that's comforting. It's It's got low transmissibility, which probably accounts in large part for the low number of cases, I would, I would think. That's right. That's right. Now, there is a vaccine available for monkeypox. And actually, there might be two of them, I think, but these are different. Remember the last time you were on, we talked about the mRNA technology that was being used to make the COVID vaccines and the monkeypox vaccines are different than that. Can you, can you talk about what type of vaccines these are? Sure. So they are completely different. We do have two uh, approved vaccines in the U S right now. So we can kind of talk about them, but just as a reminder uh, for the SARS uh, virus for, for COVID, uh, we have, you know, remember we have uh, we have quite a few now out there if you look around. But if you just talk about the basic definition, we have mRNA vaccines, which are basically taking um, messenger RNA, which is a, a a carrier piece of RNA that we use every day in our own bodies uh, to to create proteins. It's part of the transcription and translation events that occur. But but what vaccinologists have done is they've taken that. And they have engineered it so that when you inject someone with that mRNA, it will direct your own body's ability to create uh, proteins. They will create SARS-CoV protein that your body then reacts to and creates antibody against COVID. So it's, I guess, the the big point there is that it's a non-living uh, type of thing. You have no danger of acquiring any any infection. It's it's, it's, I think, brilliant a technology, and it works very well because you can yeah. change it. You can change the code, you know, to a different spike protein, for example. It's just wonderful. It's a wonderful tool, in my professional opinion. Now, there are other vaccines that have worked long. They're true and tried. Uh, different ways you can, you know, the old DNA-based vaccines or the old antigen-based vaccines where you take a, a component of a virus for example, and you inject a person with it and they respond uh, by creating antibodies to that foreign protein. So there's just different varieties out there. And maybe that's another <laughs> another talk. But the two um, the two we have for monkeypox, uh, one of them is called it's called ACAM 2000. It's a live vaccinia virus preparation uh, that's inoculated uh, in like pricking the skin surface. And once that occurs, you get a lesion that develops at the site of the vaccination and that it will actually grow. The virus will grow at the site of that inoculation 
in that lesion and it'll spread to other parts of the body uh, and people who get that. Uh, this is kind of the old school, like smallpox, if you remember this, you actually can also spread it to other people because that lesion actually has live virus in it, but it is a weakened version. It's a different type of virus that will still give you immunity to smallpox and monkeypox in this case. So whoever receives that vaccine, the ACAM 2000, you have to kind of take some precautions to prevent the spread uh, of the virus for about 28 days. And so that's kind of a classic look at that type of vaccine. And then the other one, um, Janos, it's spelled J-Y-N-N-E-O-S. It's also administered as a live virus, but it's non-replicating. And it's two subcutaneous injections about, about, I think it's about four weeks apart. And you don't see a lesion or anything like that. So there's no risk for you to spread it to any other part of the body or other people. And typically about two weeks after you get that second dose, you're considered to be vaccinated. As a healthcare person, as a medical laboratorian, you might receive this vaccination. For example, if you are working with orthopox viruses, because it can give you kind of a pre-exposure. This is the ACAM. This can give you the pre-exposure uh, protection. Say if you're working in a research laboratory or you're doing testing, the military sometime will also get this. And so it's not something that you're going to see administered again right now across the United States like we did COVID because we're not having an, a massive pandemic or even an epidemic with this. People aren't dying. Mm -hmm. Most people most people who get monkeypox, it resolves on its own. You really don't even need treatment. So there's just not a major risk. But if you have people that you're concerned about or if you know you're working with it in, in those situations, you might receive this vaccination kind of as a risk reduction uh, routine. Okay, so it's kind of only for people who are, would be at a high risk. Yeah, and, and, and like I mentioned, um, because monkeypox is closely related, it's a cousin of smallpox, if you get the smallpox vaccine, uh, it can actually protect you from monkeypox. So it's kind of interesting. Past data uh, from Africa suggests that uh, that smallpox vaccine is about 85% effective in preventing monkeypox. And so that that was kind of a, concluded from a study of looking at some of this data going back. And so there are people out there, Dennis, that think and, and sort of predicted it's kind of interesting that because we eliminated smallpox, I think the, the date that is often stated is 1980. Mm -hmm. uh, and we quit doing it. Right. So we quit doing it. We eliminated smallpox in, in a weird way. And that was a wonderful thing because smallpox did kill people. We, we think that perhaps we set up an opportunity for monkeypox to become more available to, to cause infection because we just kind of quit vaccinating. Uh, you also had the effect of, of smallpox not naturally going through the population and creating natural immunity. And so it's allowed monkeypox perhaps an opportunity to be the more predominant virus because, because we basically took care of smallpox after mm. 1980. Great. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I think that the smallpox vaccine, at least in the U.S., that we could quit giving that in what was it, early 70s, I think, right. or mid-70s maybe. Right. And, and so, yeah, you've got a whole several generations of people that are not vaccinated against smallpox. That's right. Have that sort of extra immunity against 
monkeypox. That's right. In fact, some of the early questions after my publications that I got in comments were from people probably of my parents' age, you know, like 75 or 80. I'm I'm 55, so I was born in 67, and I did not receive it in Texas because they had quit giving it at that time. But I did get it as a healthcare worker in the public health department because I was around zoonotic disease. So again, it kind of depends on your on your background, but but they would ask me, you know, am I am I okay? Am I protected? I had this back in the 50s and 60s as a vaccine, and I what I had to tell them was. You know, perhaps uh, you probably have some titer, some memory B cells that would be helpful if you were exposed to monkeypox. However, it's been so long and and you're talking about older people that don't do well anyway with with immunity as far as being more active and more uh, ramped up that I told them, you know, you, you know, if you're really concerned, you know, you might ask for a titer check or are you not just realize that you're going to need another another vaccine if that occurs. But again, I would reassure them that it's going to be pretty rare for you to even be exposed to monkeypox. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a good uh, research project for any of the mm-hmm. virologists out there. Okay. The, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is testing. And I, I know this is something that you talk about a lot. Uh, it seems like we wouldn't need kind of a, or th- there wouldn't be sort of a standard monkeypox test in most top hospital labs just because it's still kind of a rare thing. And you've written about the laboratory response network, which is where most of this testing is done. Can you talk about what this is and and how it works? First of all, uh, again, because of the rarity of this disease, it's not something that you would see broad uh, spread use of any type of testing within a hospital system and certainly not within like clinics at your personal your, you know, your primary care physician or anything like that. So there is testing and it's primarily a molecular based uh, where we're using things like real-time PCR. A lot of the, again, a lot of the terminology you've heard with COVID, it's just directed at a DNA based virus. And so there's some, there's some broader tests. Let me explain it in this way. Sometimes you'll have a more broad molecular test that will detect, for example, all of the orthopox viruses. So it'll pick up any orthopox viruses that kind of gives you that that larger um, screening test, perhaps. And then there's a more, you know, narrow spectrum test that's actually for the detection of monkeypox virus. They even have it down to the point of West African versus Congo Basin clade viruses. So. You can do that as well as once you get it amplified with PCR, you can sequence it to figure that out. So now what does this mean? Well, again, I'm going to say this from a very public health standpoint. In reality, because this virus does not cause a lot of death or cause massive morbidity or spread, and it resolves with most people without causing any problems, you really don't necessarily have to know every single positive in what's happening, but you do want to have some surveillance-based testing in place so that you can ramp up in case something happens. And that's kind of been the approach of the um, CDC and APHL and and kind of our national testing is that we do have it. Uh, we have, of course, the Centers for Disease Control that have those tests in place. And then what they've created over the years, and I was, I remember this back when I was working in the Department of Health, They created something called the Laboratory Response Network, LRN labs. Typically, those are within state health departments. So, for example, the Department of Health in Austin is an LRN lab. 
and most states have one. I think there's 47 of them actually. And they're either your state health department or they might be associated with uh, maybe a big university uh, okay. health science center or something. It kind of depends on the state. And they're set up to do that testing. So the way it kind of works, if you suspect you have monkeypox in Texas, and I'm about 45 miles from Austin, you know, I might see my doctor, I might talk to them about my case history, and I'm kind of worried, and they might take a swab of a lesion if I had one, and they would send that to the Department of Health in Austin, and they would run the test. And then typically that specimen would be split, and they would send it to CDC to kind of confirm it, and then you would get your answer, kind of a confirmation. So that's how it kind of works in the United States. Now, you might have seen this week, and I, I, Dennis, I apologize, I haven't dug into this too much, but I, I did see that a large uh, national oh, yeah. reference, reference lab has decided to get into this. I, I, don't, I forget, I don't know if you remember what it is. It's one of the big... I believe it was LabCorp. That's what I think. I, that's exactly what my suspicions are. I think that's right. So I'm going to say we need to check that. But I think it's LabCorp, which is a large national um, testing reference lab across the country. They're kind of getting into the game of monkeypox detection. So that will up our ability to do more testing, uh, maybe do it more rapidly just because you have more sites around the country and maybe a better feel for what's happening in the population in general. Um, and so I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I think even with COVID, we saw the necessity uh, to have corporate large scale laboratory testing versus slower kind of state-based or CDC-based, which is really more research-oriented, not massive throughput like you see with Quest or LabCorp or sonic reference labs or some of these large testing centers the only thing i would mention here as a medical laboratory professional is that we must keep in mind that we always want these places to be legitimate to be accredited and to house the proper licensed or certified medical laboratory professionals conducting the test because we do see abuse and fraud pop up. It, it, it's happened during COVID as well, where you have these pop-up labs that are actually cranking out results that are just pathetically bad, or they may not even do them, and they're just collecting money. So that's really critical for the public to understand that make sure if you have a suspicion that you don't just walk across the street to some pop-up tent without doing your research. You really should go through your primary care physician or talk to the emergency room and get it done at the Department of Health or a corporate lab that's doing it properly. Okay, I like that. That's good advice. Now, the, the monkeypox epidemic, th this shows yet again, like we've talked about the, the last two times you were on the podcast, it shows why it's important to talk about the medical laboratory. And I want to read a quote from a different interview that you did because it really exemplifies this. So you said, this one certainly raises another reminder of what I talk about all the time which is the critical need for public health surveillance and diagnostics and things like that ongoing. We can't keep, in retrospect, wishing we had things up and going. So this is a good reminder, right as COVID has kind of been at least a little quieter, to wake people up that this needs to be an ongoing, funded, eternal need for our country. All right. T t tell me about this quote. Like, How can we continue to wake people up, as you mentioned? Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for using that quote that 
Yeah, I love it. It's really, great. That really makes me think about it as well, right? So, mm-hmm. and this is, you know, I'm not the only person, but this has certainly been part of my sermon for really a couple of decades now. And again, it it, it lends itself to my, my background because of my work in the public health arena and the medical lab. So they're, they're both important. They're integrated. They should be synergistic, not antagonistic. And I think we've learned some lessons from COVID. And I think monkeypox is a wonderful way, whether you, you know, you're scared or not, it is a wonderful reminder and maybe a needed reminder that just because a COVID might be slowing down and getting quieter, we are still in the midst of a pandemic with COVID. And now we have this other monkeypox virus that's popped up on our shores. And if you don't have surveillance in place, if you do not have the ability for the United States or any country to have a laboratory system, a public health system, working in concert with the medical laboratories of hospitals and elsewhere, to have a set way to identify not only emerging viruses like the new SARS-CoV-2, but but historical viruses like monkeypox. It's been around for decades. You will not know they're here until perhaps it's either too late and people are dying or are suffering severe disease. And it's difficult at that point to catch up. And and so we saw that happen with SARS-CoV-2. In reality, what we had been screaming about for two decades happened and we caught us with our pants down, so to speak. So, you know, I mean, I think one of the lessons we've learned and, and you know, Dennis, how much I love the CDC and I've been there and I've got colleagues there, but I do think, One of the lessons we have learned is that we have to have corporate, you know, buy-in from from a political standpoint and from a corporate standpoint that the CDC and state public health departments are not built to be ramping up and mass producing testing for, you know, a pandemic. That's really a corporate level type of lab. We must have university research labs. We must have places like Quest and LabCorp and uh, Sonic Reference Labs and these other large testing companies cooperating with the federal government and state government that can ramp up quickly when we have these issues. And one of the things, and this isn't my idea, I've, I've read this in multiple books and other places, I think it's a great idea, is that we need to find a way to keep some of these platforms, some of these platforms that are specific for, say, coronaviruses in general, and have people working with them and consistently keeping things available. Now, does this cost money? Yes, but we need to find a way to at least keep a footprint uh, so that you're able to ramp up at least relatively quickly and not reinvent the wheel, so to speak. So I will go to my grave saying that we need a national plan that has eternally funded, you know, line item funding for surveillance, for uh, public health professionals and medical laboratory professionals to keep building programs and professionals. You know, we mentioned this before, we have a massive shortage going on in staffing. You do not build a medical lab professional or a physician or a nurse or an epidemiologist overnight. It takes years. And we need the support for programs and and the ability to keep that pipeline going, because as soon as we let our guard down, that virus or that bacteria or that fungus is going to pop up and it's and it's not going away. Uh, these things will continue to happen. 
And so I appreciate the the moment for a soapbox uh, moment there with you, but it's just it's just necessary in my opinion, and it's going to cost a little money. But I will always say, if we're funding the the Department of Defense at certain levels, that a virus is just as deadly, if not more deadly, than our enemies and any terrorist that we've ever seen. They've certainly killed more than all the wars combined. So why are we not preparing for that through funding? Yep, I love it. That that is a great message, and I am right behind you with that one. Uh, you know, I I have to say I appreciate everything that you do to advocate for the medical laboratory. I appreciate that you're constantly out there shining a light on everything that we do with all of the interviews you do, uh, all of the articles that you write. And and I appreciate your time being here today once again. Uh, Dr. Rodney Rohde, thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis. As always, your show is a a wonderful platform, and I hope you will continue to make these opportunities available to to all walks of life in healthcare and public health, because you know how desperate we need to get that science communication out there. So thank you. As always, great big thank you to Dr. Rodney Rohde. Right now, here's a clip from the first time Dr. Rohde was on the podcast, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. But what I continually talk about and try to remind people is that's true in some places, but what's happened is over the years is that the laboratory has been one of the primary cuts um, when it's come to budget and reimbursement and things like that. So what we've done, and this is kind of unfortunate, and that it's a pat on the back is we've learned how to deal with it. I mean, we do more with less. Right. We have, our professionals are trained to to juggle a ton of things at one time. I mean, we had great students become great professionals. And, you know, they're used to this. They're used to uh, handling emergencies, juggling different parts of the lab and, and prioritizing specimens and which ones to be first and all those things, all on top of validating you know, new assays and new equipment and making sure everybody understands that you just can't throw in a test and start using it. So we're kind of the gatekeepers of quality. Um, and we often call ourselves the doctor's doctor. I mean, we're there to provide the critical information for patient care. You can learn more about Dr. Rohde and his career path in episode 14. All right, it's always a pleasure having Dr. Rohde on the show. I feel like I learn so much from him every time he's here. You know, he's such a great guy, and what an advocate for medical laboratory science. So once again, big thanks to him. There were a lot of things to learn from this conversation, but I think the three biggest ones are, number one, probably not going to see a monkeypox pandemic. Number two, while we should be concerned about monkeypox, there's no reason to be afraid of it. And number three, Even though COVID seems to be winding down, lab testing is still important, and we still need to address the lab staffing shortage. I'll have links in the show notes to all of Dr. Rohde's work regarding monkeypox, and he writes and speaks extensively on this topic, so give yourself an afternoon or probably most of a day to get through this stuff. Don't forget you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And if you know someone who is interested to learn more about monkeypox, this would be a good one to share. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.